Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nesting, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello, and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring fantasy flight games as Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dana. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. And today, we're finally talking about the campaign everybody's been talking about. I mean, like three months ago, but we're finally <laughs> here. The Scarlet Letter. Wait. Secrets in Scarlet. No. Pokemon Scarlet? Oh, you guys, we're finally, we're finally talking about Pokemon? I'm so glad to hear, <laughs> I'm so glad to hear we're pivoting. I know we did a we did a little backdoor pilot a while ago, but you know, I'm excited. Ben's all about the <laughs> the lore of Pokemon. It's actually the Scarlet Keys, right? Uh, it is okay. the Scarlet Keys, although it is comparable to the Scarlet Letter in that it is a novel. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's it's been a while, right? I feel like now that we do these episodes more sporadically, it kind of feels like a little little bit of a special occasion, even even if we're like, like you said, several months late on this one. Um, I, you know, we, we have some thoughts, so we're going to we're gonna do a podcast about it. Yeah. Do you guys realize that this campaign came out the same day that Pokemon Scarlet came out? Did Wait, did it really? <laughs> yeah. It was it's, a Scarlet wow. day. They both, they came <laughs> out, or maybe this exact same weekend, so. Did you just have that on hand? Did you just know this? What? I had to, I had to buy both in the weekend. Yeah, I had I, to go yeah. go out to oh. physical stores and buy both of them because my pre-order for Pokemon was late and I tried to go to a store to buy the campaign. It was a whole it was a whole thing. So. Ben, where does Pokemon Scarlet fit in the like Pokemon game tier rankings? Is it like kind of near the top, <laughs> near the bottom, kind of in the middle? Like what where, where are we at on this? I mean, I enjoyed playing it. Um, but uh it had some very glaring flaws. Uh, that were impossible to ignore. And now I've been playing Zelda recently, I'm like, oh, this is how a game is supposed to work. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. Jesus. Oh, Ben. Ben. I, I don't know. Feels like um, foreshadowing, kind of. Let's, let's talk about something a, a little bit less yikes, and uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the Scarlet Keys. So I think, um, I think first we wanted to kind of briefly talk about the structure of the campaign, right? So we saw a year ago with Edge of the Earth, they made this big change where instead of doing, you know, eight separate scenarios or, or, you know, a a kind of intro pack with two scenarios and then six more, you know, little single scenario packs that have to be played in order, they started releasing them all in one box. And that gave them a lot more freedom to have like some scenarios be longer than others, to be more flexible about how they share encounter cards, um, to have the scenarios kind of interact with each other in more complex ways. But I feel like the the change from Edge of the Earth to Scarlet Keys is almost even bigger than the change from, you know, like Innsmouth to Edge of the Earth, right? Because this one was completely non-linear in the sense that there's like a first scenario and a last scenario, but the others, there's just like a big map and you can travel around it and do the scenarios in pretty much any order. You have a certain amount of time and it takes a certain amount of time to move around the map. And you can, you probably don't get to do all the scenarios or maybe, maybe not even most of them, depending on how sort of meticulously you spend your time and how you make decisions. I'm going to be honest. I did not really pay a whole lot of attention to how the map stuff works. Um, Ben and, and, and Dana, can you guys maybe talk a little bit about how, how that navigation part happens? I tried to 
feed it to you in, in little tidbits and boil it down to like one or two decisions for you but you yeah but you I, refused, I just didn't you i didn't care at all i didn't i didn't care even a little bit and i care about a lot of really boring shit but i did not care about this <laughs> yeah so the this was a big a big step up in terms of um branching paths i guess from from edge of the earth edge of the earth kind of uh it was edge of the earth was actually also still mostly linear if you think about it uh you could like skip you could skip some scenarios you could right? skip scenarios and there was like one scenario that like repeated itself and like sort of did slightly different things and it, the story kind of changed not the story but the gameplay changed a bit depending like which people got killed off or whatnot but it was still mostly a straight line and all the previous campaigns there were occasionally like oh you could do scenario a or b of this first or whatever but this campaign throws it all out the window and it's like all right there's a there's an a a start to finish as you said and these other eight scenarios, you can do whatever order you want. In fact, some of them, uh, yeah, and they change depending on when you do them in the campaign or what you've done already in the campaign. So there's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of reaching paths. It's, it's much more like a web than just like a, a, a line or a tree or whatever, you know? Yeah, it's way more dynamic. I mean, I like the feeling of opening the box and then seeing this top secret map. And then you open it and it's a map of the world and it's like, the possibilities are endless. But we know that you always start in like one place. You always start in London, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where scenario one is. Yeah. So I guess I think we'll kind of briefly talk about each scenario, maybe not go into depth in them. So like the first one, it was Riddles and Rain, which was in London. And it kind of introduced this concealed mechanic. It introduces like the red man or red glove man as an enemy sort of you're chasing him around and it kind of introduces a little bit with like the that you're sort of working for the government i guess you're directly working for like is it the government or it's like a secret agency yeah it's like the secret it's the thing that trish is in right i don't remember the black the yeah I don't the black chamber <laughs> is it i don't i don't remember seeing the words black chamber anywhere in the campaign but there's a lot of words so it's possible i think i think it's maybe more like kind of hinted at some kind of secret thing than they mm-hmm. then it's not something they maybe give a specific name but i don't really remember yeah but yeah the, the first scenario it's it's just it's raining and it, it felt like a pretty basic arkham scenario so yeah and and after that you can do the scenarios in any order i think we're mm-hmm. going to read them in the order that they're listed in the campaign guide but of course you don't have to do them in that order and you probably won't yeah mm-hmm. and uh i guess if it, we didn't mention this already but the spoilers for the whole campaign uh <laughs> um, if, if, that <laughs> was wasn't, if that wasn't clear yeah yeah so dead heat uh that's the one that takes place in morocco uh, it's themed around, there's some zombies basically rising up, uh, save the civilians. The enemy there is the lady with the flower, whose name is Amaranth. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a. Uh... <laughs> you, you guys didn't actually write it in the notes here, you wrote something else. Oh do you, do you want to share what's in the notes here? <laughs> Dana, are you Okay. Hold on, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dan made a joke earlier, and it's it's not even that funny, and it's one of those situations where because it's not that funny, I don't. It just hit me at the and it like yeah. kind of got me in the funny bone or whatever. Uh-huh. But Dan said Ermagerd, it's Ermagerd, and I don't know why I lost it, but I lost <laughs> it. But yeah, she's an evil flower lady with basically no redeemable qualities that turns people to zombies and is pretty mean <laughs> yeah 
And and this one felt maybe a little bit like um, Clutches of Chaos or something, where you kind of have to travel around a map, like preventing bad stuff from happening at various locations in like mm. a semi-random way. Yeah. It definitely felt like it could get kind of overwhelming at times. Like sometimes just a lot of stuff happens in one turn and it feels like it's almost impossible to do anything with it. But some, you know, maybe if you really, really play well, maybe you can do it. Yeah. And there's a couple of cool enemies. There's like a zombie lion. And I think she's trying to resurrect her like zombie husband or boyfriend or something. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't um, want to do that? Yeah. Well, that, well that's a redeemable quality. I, I think that's her Her motivation is she wants to zombify her, her former lover. That's pretty so. much the plot of The Mummy, the the film The Mummy from 1999, <laughs> right? Cinematic masterpiece, The Mummy. Yep. <laughs> Starring Brendan Fraser. Unironically. Yeah. Um, what's the next scenario? Uh, Sanguine Shadows is the next one in the book, uh, which is in Buenos Aires. Uh, this one has you chasing around, not Carmen Sandiego, um, <laughs> who's trying to steal stuff, and you're trying to stop her from stealing stuff. It kind of plays with the concealed mechanic. A lot of these scenarios like, kind of play with the concealed mechanic in different ways. This one, like, uh, you can like use clues to like try to try to find where she's hiding because she's hiding at like different locations. And then if you successfully stop her from stealing anything. There is a uh, uh, an extra act where you fight kind of the real villain of the campaign, or not the campaign of the scenario, the the sanguine watcher. And I haven't actually done that part. I just know it happens, so I have no further comment. For folks who haven't played it, because it's kind of like a hard cut between the acts, uh, the sanguine watcher looks very much like the villain from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, and there's something funky going on with his eyes. Uh, and he's kind of, he's very spooky. Um, he, he terrified me as a child and he's back. He's back for more terrifying things. So watch out. I mean, isn't, him. isn't saying who the villain of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is kind of a spoiler for Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Should we go back and like, <laughs> spo- I mean, the, spoiler the, shield I, for I have actually not Roger seen Rabbit. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so I think you might be ruining this movie for me. That yeah, that's, like a, that's that was definitely, that was definitely going to go see. Man. So, yeah, I mean, it, I should have seen that coming. It's it's not that great. I mean, it's, it's better than literally every superhero movie ever made, but it's not like amazing <laughs> or anything. I mean, if it was the choice between that and like Boston Johnny, what would you what would you pick, Dad? Boston Johnny. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, okay. So what's our, what's our? Do we have I, not not for my lightning round comments? We only, I only played it once and okay. didn't get to do the, the. We chose not to do the third act because we were almost dead and. Some of the nonsense. So okay, okay. What's what's the next scenario? Uh, dealings in the dark. This is you meet a- AJ. Is that how you pronounce her name? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and you, you're we, in. We think maybe you. It's in the it's in the book. I assume whoever wrote the, our notes here copied the phonetic pronunciation out of the book. Is that not? Is that not what happened? Okay, great. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so anyway, we're we're in like a, a big bazaar. Um, we're trying to find the artifacts. I don't, I don't think, I can't remember if it's for sale or just like we need to meet somebody in the bazaar. But the cool thing that it kind of, uh, I think this one introduces the hollow mechanic. It's, it's a scenario that's like very close to London. So it's like a good chance you'll, uh, do it first. It'll be the first experience. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so it, it, it brings in the hollow mechanic and it's the second, second act is kind of like, uh, you're like fighting your way through a bazaar and then you find the thing and then you have to like escape. Well, the enemies will try to steal it from you, and then they'll, they'll try to escape. Mm. Um, that's a neat sequence. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that one. I don't know. Any 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 other notes on that one? Quick. No. All right. I don't really know. Then, uh, <laughs> Dancing Mad um, is in Havana, Cuba. So Cuba. this is the one that has um, also known as Mojito City. Scuba. 
Um, this is the one that has a Desi as the enemy, who's like a. I, f- I forget what his deal was. Was he like a, a crime lord or something? Or yeah, it's kind of like a boss. He's there's like two. A... There's two of them, right? Well, there's two of them later in this scenario. Um, but yeah, he, he's mad spoilers. It, well... Dan. <laughs> We are, we already said we would spoil the whole campaign. We didn't yeah, specifically mention where we would mention yeah, Ruin, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, or Boss and Johnny. So neither one of those things has been. <laughs> you know, but I think we'll try not to spoil Boss and Johnny though. So yeah, I mean he's like a he's like a mob boss with a heart of gold somehow. You see, which but, really doesn't happen at all. I feel like I missed. I feel like I missed the heart of gold part. I guess yeah, I don't the, know about I, the heart of gold part. No, I guess at the I mean, end. His flavor he, text is I look out for my own. So that's just like, you know, he's like... That's not a heart of gold. That's, that's not like, how that works. That's like my family. I protect my family and screw everybody else or whatever. And yeah. Else. yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. fair. Um, I mean, if you get a... Depending on what resolution you get, he could maybe team up with you and be your friend. But it's more like a, uh, like, oh yeah, I respect you now type of vibe is what I was getting. Because mm-hmm. there's a second copy of him that shows up halfway through. And you kill... Which is cool. And you kill one of them or two of them at the same time if you're very cool. But one still survives, and he's like, oh, we're friends now. But you're not actually sure which one survived or not, if it was the clone yeah. or, the, or, the, or the real guy. You're, like, instructed to put it away, right? The copy? You have to, like, yeah, whichever one is alive, you, like, have to put it away somewhere without looking at the back of it, and you get to find out later whether you save the right one or so not. Cool. <laughs> There's ways to, like, figure it out. I think if you do other, scenar- other scenarios or interludes first, you can get, like, a hint. Mm, that's right. But, um... And maybe it also depends what the timing is. I, both the times I've done the scenario, we got there like in the back half of the campaign. So I think you get ambushed. I don't know if there's. I think there's an alternative. Where maybe you don't get immediately ambushed in the bar wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, this this is the one of the ones I liked a little bit. I, I think I like the ambush in the bar. Uh, have to fight your way out part of the scenario, and then they kind of run, run around the city trying to find st- find guys and like interview stuff. So yeah, any other notes on that one? I think we covered it. All right. Uh, on Thin Ice is the Alaska scenario at Anchorage. We didn't write down what city it was in. It has uh, one of the most terrifying enemies in the game, which we won't mention any further. I mean, if you've been, you know, you know. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has Thorn uh, as the coterie person. They, uh, what's their vibe? They're just kind of like a, I think they're kind of like a stuck-up person. They don't per- ever person. Speak, right? They're like, they're... They're mute, or they they just don't talk at all, and you kind of just infer mm. what they. Is that true? I, I thought they I thought they talked. Are, are you thinking of the the ghost lady, Aliki or whatever? Is oh that... oh yeah yeah I'm I'm thinking of a, a different one down the line. But Thorn is very much like a. This is the anime boyfriend of this whole thing. Okay, this this is the one that MJ really wanted to happen, uh, it, and I'm very okay. happy for it, it. It feels like most of the coterie people are like <laughs> evil anime boyfriends or girlfriends. <laughs> or I should say anime partner because yeah. they're non-binary. So yeah. yes, I remember the first half of this one being kind of edge of the earthy with like the environmental hazards and it being mm. cold, and then the second half yeah. being like a better kind of fixed version of um, undimensioned and unseen. Like, where you're trying to trap, like, big scary monsters that you sort of can't directly mm. fight until you trap them. Yeah. Yeah. I like how the map opened up, too. Yeah. It did that cool. really well. It's a good, like, in the, not Arctic, in the, like, Tundra type of area campaign, it's cold. There's some wild animals that are scary, and then there's also some spooky things happening. And I liked, yeah, I did like the hunting down and trapping the, the monster mechanic at the end. Definitely some cool locations. Uh, there's, like, a mine, isn't there? There's a gold mine or whatever. So, yeah. 
so pre- pretty cool stuff there. I did, I did like the final boss. It was a good way to implement like a final boss concealed mechanic. That's also like a beast you're hunting down. So yeah, Dogs of War is uh, the scenario that's in Egypt in Alexandria. This one has three versions. I've played the campaign twice and I've only managed to do one version of it, which is you have the Claret Knight and he's like, you got to help me uh, do something. And, and, and the version I did is the one we say no. And we take we want we want to steal the the uh, whatever the key is the light of something. So in that one you have to like destroy these like uh, lotus sites or locusts. Locust sites, yeah. Right. Um. So they're like you know uh, you destroy those and then you can go fight fight him. I believe the other versions there is a enemy called the beast in a crimson cow a beast in the crimson cow which is some type of uh maybe a werewolfy guy maybe I don't I don't know because I haven't done <laughs> I haven't done that version. Maybe a little werewolf-esque. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like, yeah. You're trying to, like, fight him or, like, maybe protect the Claret Knight from him or something. I don't know. I haven't done those yeah, two versions. Yeah, that's the but, one uh, I did. But, yeah, it's it's an okay scenario. I don't know. The Claret Knight seems like such a huge dick in the opening, <laughs> the opening section that I'm like, nah. We, we did it the first time. Like, nah, we're not going to alley with this guy. And uh, this like time I think we, I think it, uh, whatever path we were trying to do, it's what we wanted, so... I don't. I honestly don't remember too much about this, other than that he was a dick, and there was like the lotus sites. I don't remember it being too challenging the version we did. So, what about what were your thoughts on this one, uh, Dana or Dan? I really don't remember much about this one. I think this was the first one. the 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 most remarkable thing about this scenario was the fact that they had the the locusts themselves, loci, had health that scaled depending on the number of investigators that were there. Mm. I remember looking at that health thing and being like, wow, that's the number of investigators. And then I just don't remember really anything else. I mean, I know Dan hated this scenario because it was the one where the Clarinite has the key in this one is the one that makes you discard cards when it gets flipped. Oh, and like, and yeah. the encounter deck also had the, you know, uh, f- uh, activate any bad guy's keys thing. But other, other than that, yeah, key charge or whatever, not much else to say, I think, for that one. In our lightning round, so I think that is all, except for the finale, those are all the, I guess, quote-unquote regular scenarios. Um, there are two more that are, you have to kind of unlock by doing certain actions on the map, like to go to certain places or do certain things. Uh, the first one is Shades of Suffering, which is in Kuala Lumpur. Um, it has the Umbrella Lady, whose name is Su, uh, Su Sang-Nang. Is that anywhere close? A whisper in your ear. Let's let's just move past it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I um, so she's uh she's got an umbrella that like steals souls, but not a regular umbrella. It's a magic umbrella. Yeah, it's very mm. it's a very mean umbrella. Um, and not a and not a Mary is. Poppins style magic umbrella. That's good. <laughs> a very scary evil magic umbrella. Yeah, it's more like a little parasol, right? Sure. I mean, isn't that like a subcategory of umbrella? Sure. sure. Again, or let's no. let's move past it. Um, <laughs> um, so, w- what I what I mainly remember about this one is it's kind of like the wages of sin of this campaign, mm-hmm. where yeah, you're trying to much like the heretics, you really want to try to save all the ghosts, but it's very difficult because they are constantly at risk of getting eaten by the scary umbrella lady, and in order to save them, you have to like bring them to a certain location and or you have to like have done a certain thing at a certain location and you have to flip them and then flip them again maybe um so i think we 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 thought this was like probably the hardest scenario in the campaign i think yeah no matter where you are because i did this early on in the in the uh, campaign 
And I also did it much later. And it was mm. just so brutal both times. Mm. Because the doom, the doom, sort of the way that the doom scales is just like, you have to just basically hit the ground running. Similar to Wages of Sin, right? But I did like theming a lot more in this one. I liked the uh, the way that they all interacted. Ben's in my first playthrough, which we did on Tabletop Simulator, and which I think you can probably still find on Twitch or YouTube. I died really fast in this one and just played Halo Reach while Ben <laughs> kind of ran <laughs> around right. sort of trying to finish it. You were playing Joe Diamond, right? Joe, Di- yep. Joe Diamond and Mundy. Got absolutely murked. Uh, you know, that's just how it goes. It uh, yeah, they also have huge stats, all the shades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, they're like they fives sure and fours across the board. <laughs> all the tests are really high. There's ways to reduce them, but it's like all. This was just like all of the encounter cards are bad. All of the tokens are bad. All of the enemies are bad. Everything is bad. Yeah, it was surprisingly brutal. I think for me, for for like uh, <laughs> like the amount of work you have to do, uh, you have to spend a lot of energy just to get there, and then it's very brutal. And the reward is if you succeed is also, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> Not you get good. the umbrella. You get the umbrella, but the umbrella wasn't too impressive. I forget exactly what it did, but there was also like an extra cost. Like you had to take trauma or something to take. Yeah, there, it. yeah. There's really, there's really only one of the keys that actually rocks, and we'll we'll maybe talk more about that later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not the umbrella. <laughs> I did like the little bit of story when you like do defeat her when mm-hmm. she you like kind of take the umbrella from her, and she's like, "You don't have the guts," and then like, I don't think there's also any anything You're like, redeemable bitch, yes, about we her. Do. And you're like, you're like smash the dialogue button, smashing through the dialogue to see like, you know, to find the thing that's just like zap her with the, (laughs) and we did that. It was Carolyn and Vincent, a doctor and a psychologist. And we were like, no, no, fuck that. You're you're like hitting the turbo button on your Mad Cat's third party (laughs) controller so that you can hit, like, use the umbrella even harder, you know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. It was great. Definitely probably the hardest scenario, I think, in my experience, so... But yeah, I, she was definitely a very evil villain. Uh, so I liked all that. Um, the other secret scenario is without a trace. This takes place in the Bermuda Triangle. Ooh. No nation owns the Bermuda Triangle as far as I know. Atlantis. So this one had... this. What? Atlantis. Does Atlantis owns... Oh, okay. That makes sense. Uh, so, no, he's in Atlantis in the Pacific... Whatever. Uh, the, Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> um, ben. What, ben, what's the name of the sunken city we're talking about? <laughs> Atlantis could be It's not Pacific, yeah. okay? Sorry, I was thinking of a different underground sunken city, I guess. Uh, whatever yeah, Cthulhu, Lemuria or whatever. Uh, Raleigh, I think. Isn't that it, uh, Pacific? Maybe not. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, so this one introduced... You, like, you go into the, the outer realm, or the outside, I think, is the spooky zone. Which, Ooh. you know, I'm, I was on board with that. Obviously, yeah, uh, which is unusual uh, because Ben is usually basically against going to the outside in in real world <laughs> contexts. I'm, wor- I'm working on it. We're we're biking more. We're, we're doing a little bit more outside stuff. So nice. that's really good. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's, been, it's like thunderstorm raining like the last week, which is sad. So uh, that sucks. Well, that means all the water types are out, right? Oh, it does. But they, they they show up at my house just when it's raining, so I don't have to go outside for them. Uh, which which is counter to what what the point of playing that game is. Anyway. So, uh, yeah, we go to the outside. This introduces the concept of uh, locations being in the shadows and having to discover locations by uh, by uh, uh, yeah. revealing the concealed cards. Pretty weird. That was cool. You team up with uh, Aliki, I think was maybe her name. Yeah. 
She's like mm-hmm. a maybe a ghost, or maybe she just wears white. It looks like a ghost. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, she doesn't say anything. This is the one who doesn't say anything. No, she talks. Doesn't she talk in some ancient language or something? Or oh, that's like, right, that's right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That but you we, can't. We really don't know. Her. But one of our teammates maybe knows at some point. I don't remember quite what her deal was. But yeah, she's spooky. There's a big spooky hollow enemy in this, and I think the a main story point is revealed here that the that the Red Glove Man uh, that we've been following is not the real Red Glove Man, and he's actually trapped here, and I think we save him, or you try to save him. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then escape. So this this was a, I think this was a, a very high concept and neat scenario. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I think the the mechanic of revealing stuff from the shadows, because this is also in the final scenario, the, revealing the locations of the shadows is a little hard to parse i had to read it a few times before i figured out what was going on but but thematically it was fun and cool yeah we'll um, we'll come back yeah. to that later too yeah and yeah there was a big there was a big like cool hollow enemy that would interact with the hollows and because you have a leaky in this one you can like undo some hollowing which is fun so th- was this the one where you had to like remove all of your hollows to beat him yeah 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 i like it when they have mechanics they introduce earlier and you know they twist them either into your favor or, uh, or in different ways ways you can manipulate them so uh, definitely a fun uh, scenario and, and a, a big plot point. Um, and then that leaves the final scenario. So the final scenario you can do, I think, after you've spent like 15 time or 17 time or something like that, or when you run out of time, or you can just travel there whenever. So like theoretically, you could do it after doing like two or three scenarios, I think. Or or like you might have to do one if you just spend the whole, if you just travel around the map and don't do any scenarios. You know, honestly, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I kind of want to try that now. If you're yeah, trying to speed that. run, if you're trying to speed run Scarlet Keys Breath of the Wild style, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's actually yeah. So you would just uh, you you have to do London, you have to do uh, Riddles and Rain until you can resign, yeah, yeah. probably. But yeah, you you finish then, London by like dying, and then you like <laughs> attach a rocket to a plank and immediately blast a Tunguska or whatever. And, uh... <laughs> so no, regardless of when you do it. Uh, I think there's three different, uh, I think, intros that kind of spin the spin how the story plays out. But basically, the all the Coterie guys uh, vote to whether they think you're cool or not to join their club or not join their club. Uh, or maybe uh, if you've made friends with the real Red Love Man, he'll uh, reveal the truth behind the Coterie. And it's uh, the truth is that they're spooky guys that haven't infested the Coterie, the outsiders. So yeah, the ba- the bad guys that we thought were the bad guys had actually been infiltrated by even worse guys. Exactly, a classic. It's true. Uh, a classic, classic escalation. Case, yeah. So I think the beginning. I think there's like a little bit of fight. Sometimes you're fighting the coterie. Sometimes they're teamed up with you. Um, and eventually you have to go back. To, you have to go to the outside. You explore around the outside a bit, and then you have to like climb a t- spooky tower. I feel like it's a spooky tower. It might be a it spooky. Is, yeah. Might be like a spooky staircase in a tower in the in the floating rocks realm of the outside or whatever it is. But you yeah. climb up that, and at the top you fight the the nemesis, and it uses it's a it's an interesting boss because um, it uses a concealed mechanic to like shield itself from like attacks. Yeah, you can like uh, spend clues to get rid of some of his shields, or you can just kind of get lucky and hit him. It's 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 like a what is it mirror image <laughs> in in D and D where you just you have five copies of yourself whatever and there's a chance you can hit him but maybe we'll just poof it so yeah it was, that was a cool mechanic i like that this was like a i, I like the boss fight in this there's also another use of concealed here which was like the um you have to unlock the door so like 
you had to reveal the concealed cards in a certain order to like unlock. Oh, that's right. It, it wasn't a door. It was, but it unlock the next location. I forget exactly what it was. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, this is the conclusion here. Um, I think I liked the conclusion. I thought it was mechanically interesting. It was pretty good. Agreed. Any any notes? Any other notes from you guys on on any of these individual scenarios? We always said that the uh, the Bermuda Triangle one was like where all your socks go. Like when they fall out, when when you pull all your laundry out of the dryer and you're just missing some random socks, this is where they go. And all the other random stuff that you might lose along the People way. People always joke about that. I, I don't think I lose a lot of socks. Yeah, I don't, I don't lose People socks. People say that it's the sock gnomes and all that kind of stuff, but this is where they end up. I mean, don't socks just get like sucked into the filter or something or like small pieces of clothing? You know when you pull stuff out of the dryer, you have to kind of like reach in and like run your hand around the like yeah. inside oh, yeah, of yeah, the yeah. of the ring cuz like there's probably one just like caught up there, but if you do that, you're probably not going to lose a lot of socks in my experience. Anyway, let's let's move on. <laughs> So those are the 10 scenarios, right? And it's worth mentioning that we we think it, it turns out there actually is like, a, there's a couple of very specific ways to do all 10 kind of in like, in, in certain ways, but like a typical first playthrough, or if you're not like reading Reddit, you're probably going to do like maybe seven or eight of these or something mm-hmm. like that. And you're probably not going to do the secret ones. You're probably not going to yeah. do Kuala Lumpur or Bermuda Triangle. I mean, you could, you have to pay attention to the story text and the clues that it gives. Nope. Uh, well, who, who's, who's going to do that, honestly? It's a lot. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about the, we talked about the scenarios mostly in the sense of what the, what the experience of playing them is like and kind of what they bring to the table. What is, what's the story of this campaign? Because I have to be honest, the first time we played it, I really had no idea what was going on. That's not that unusual because I think the same was true for like Innsmouth or something. I think the, the second time playing through it, I have a somewhat better idea of what's going on. Does anyone have thoughts on this? So my understanding, which may be completely incorrect, is the, I mean, the gist is uh, things are disappearing from existence and they're, they're like extra disappearing because people also forget they ever existed. So, you know, right. it's an extra spooky way to disappear. Yeah. And there is an agency. I'm not, I can't remember if it's a government agency or just like a, a secret agency or whatever that is investigating it and you get kind of recruited into it because the cell the cell well, the no, foundation we're, we're, it's the foundation and we are the cell like we're a cell okay. of the right. foundation or whatever um <laughs> too so many too, names too many too many words <laughs> there's a lot of characters in this campaign dan i'm not yep. sure if you noticed <laughs> yes, there are. Uh-huh. yep uh remember how in edge of the earth there was like nine characters and that was a lot <laughs> yes i remember that quite well i was gonna say <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, they somehow managed to fit even more characters into this one. Yes, but who could forget Dr. Rodrigo We We didn't actually uh, bump Smith, into... We didn't bump we into... cared about so much in Edge of the Earth. Damn. Um, oh, Edge of the Earth. Okay. I, it's like, I thought, did you read into the Scarlet Keys more and read the scenarios we knew? Because there are several doctors that we don't meet. Uh, <laughs> we, did, we didn't meet in our playthroughs. Um, but yeah, so you join this agency that's investigating the spooky disappearances... There's also this uh, coterie group who's like a secret society of people that think they know what they're doing. They're trying to do something with the keys, and there's some some way related to the outsiders. And there's these keys that are these powerful magic objects that are in some way tied to the to the disappearances. And uh, that's kind of the whole story of the campaign. Like each scenario is you like go meet one of the coterie people, maybe fight them, maybe team up with them. Uh, maybe get a key, maybe let them have a key. Uh, and you do that like eight times <laughs> for the most part, the exception of maybe without a trace. And then there's like, there's a lot of non scenarios, places you can stop and get more story text to get more background. 
Um, there's a couple places I think you can find other keys or meet other allies or either the, either people that are in the foundation or people that are in the uh, coterie that you can ally with. Including Fortune and Folly, right? Yeah, Fortune of, well, Fortune and Folly is a, a scenario. You can, you can stop at the side scenarios and Fortune and Folly has a built-in uh, key in it. I don't, yeah. I don't know if the story in Fortune of Folly itself strongly ties to to this game. Like, there's no coterie guy there. It's just a, a mobster guy with like no, a uh, Aberon. Aberon is the coterie guy. Is he a coterie guy? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I missed that. I guess good, good for him. <laughs> um, but that's that's sort of like an eleventh scenario you could do. I guess that's kind of that's the my understanding of the campaign is literally their stuff disappearing. Foundation's trying to figure out why. Coterie is. Maybe trying to stop it, but the coterie is secretly actually the guys making it disappearing, although they're not all aware of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I miss anything, Dana, from your read of it? No, that's exactly what it was. That's like how it starts out, is just things are disappearing, and then you just kind of get breadcrumbs mm-hmm. on your way through the world. A lot of story similarities or thematic similarities to the video game Control, which is a very good video game. They actually directly reference it at one point, don't they? I mean, the hyperphysical shot caster is basically the gun from Control. Mm. And they, but they also mention it somewhere. I think it's in the one with uh, like Chica Roja. They mentioned like a refrigerator somewhere. Yeah, and like it's it's meant to be like a one of the to that. yeah what one of the th- yeah that makes sense. I mean, I'm sure it's this. I'm sure this campaign is packed with random references to to video games and stuff because <laughs> you go all over the place and there's a lot of opportunities for that. So I guess the story with this one is a little confusing because it's kind of like you can experience it in, in any order. So they don't want to do the big reveal and anything. So it is just kind of like little bread comes in each one and you don't really learn anything until like without a trace or the finale was basically the gist I got out of most of it. Yeah. I mean, we're going to, we're going to give our thoughts on kind of like how well did various elements of the campaign work later on. But I will say that like, it, it definitely felt like you're being offered a lot of freedom to make decisions about where to go and how to spend your time. And it's difficult to do that when you don't really have a sense of what is actually happening. Like that's this is true. Yeah, you know? yeah. There's a lot of um, maybe choice paralysis like going on, like because you're like, oh, where do I want to go next? They give you like ten different places to that they suggest uh, in the intro that you can go look at. Like some of them are scenarios, some of them are like points of interest or something. And and then just like making a decision every time you want to go somewhere, it's like, oh, do we go directly there? Do we like zigzag? Do we do this and that? And then the rewards you get for going to things in different orders varies. Like some, you know, like you need to go to location A and then location B. And if you go to B first, then you miss out on something. And I don't know. And the rewards yeah. could be something pretty good. Like maybe mm-hmm. you get to like get an XP or something like that. Or it could be yeah. something like right in your campaign log that you know the location of the arch or something like that. And you're like, okay, right. great. And maybe, maybe you'll get, maybe you'll find the place later where you get to use that. And maybe you won't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of neat in theory. Yeah. So I guess we're talking about other story. The, so that that's the just the story. So like the themes, I guess, in the story are like um, a lot of loss and confusion uh, was the theme I got out of it. <laughs> um, things are disappearing. Yeah, I I was definitely picking on. up on confusion as a major theme of this story. <laughs> uh, pe- people don't people losing their memories, their things, their people are disappearing. I don't know. I mean, one one thing that is nice, kind of talking about a totally different thing, is we we're like traveling around the world. Which Arkham is usually kind of focused around like maybe one town, maybe two towns in a campaign, and maybe like a big uh, spooky location at the end. So this one kind of gave them a chance to like, or gave us a chance to visit a bunch of different places, and they kind of infuse different parts of the cultures and like 
uh, landmarks and stuff into the story aspects of those locations. It definitely, like, speaking as someone who, like Ben, used to play a lot of Eldritch Horror, it felt like a cool callback to that, because mm-hmm. um, we used to enjoy Eldritch Horror a whole lot. Um, and just uh, as someone who kind of likes, like, history and locations and architecture and stuff, it's just cool to, it, it's cool to, like, play a scenario that's in Istanbul in the 1920s and get a sense of, like, what was what was going on over there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they, they really tried to stay true to, like, the time period and kind of understanding, like, what was going on at those times too, which, which felt really nice. There was yeah. a, there was a cricket club, uh, in the, the campaign with a parasol lady. Which I thought like this cool. is like, this is one of the things that we liked about, um, the Cyclopean foundations campaign by the mm. beard that, that Ben and I talked about recently. Like he did a lot of research on stuff like Krakatoa and various locations for that. And we thought that was cool. And like, this had some of the same kind of, some of the same, like nice things about it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, it felt like there was a lot of research done. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they were perfect. I'm sure. I'm sure there's probably a couple of mistakes in there, but uh, I, the effort was definitely there, and it was fun to to pop around to these different places and try to get a vibe for them. And it gave Dan the opportunity to find different music uh, that theme, themed for each location for us to listen to during each one. As oh yeah, just the standard <laughs> spooky Arkham music, you know. We had a pretty good time with that. <laughs> yeah, we always put on like walking through the name of the city in the background like all the ambient sounds and then we have another computer playing like traditional you know marrakesh music or whatever moroccan you know Mm. beats or whatever so be like yeah exactly it was it was fun to do that definitely so other i'm not sure there were any other major themes that we haven't kind of touched on either in the campaign mechanics or the story i have reading written down here um yes reading was like confusion (laughs) reading was a major theme of the scarlet keys (laughs) yes uh, yes. there's a lot of reading. There's a lot of words. Uh, I do, a lot. I, I guess I was a little surprised that they really leaned into like a, a, a major Lovecraft, uh, lesson, which is the outsiders are bad and they want to take all our stuff. I was a little surprised, I was a little surprised that they touched on this day and age, but, um, and I, and I think overall <laughs> yeah. this felt kind of less Lovecraftian than most yeah. of the previous campaigns. Like it felt less, yeah. less cosmic horror and more just kind of like globetrotting supernatural adventure, which mm. is fine. Like I like that which too. Which is cool. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I had no problem with yeah. that. And I think like the point of the outsiders being bad and wanting to take all our stuff is like that everybody around the world is like kind of teaming up against them, you know, regardless of their background, mm. regardless of where they are. There's like, the Scarlet Coterie are kind of like that, like, international, not like police force, but like, I don't know, it, it's hard to explain, but they, they like, protect us from those kinds of things or whatever. Is no it like a, anyway. like a Men in Black or an Independence Day type of vibe? Yeah, or, or the League of know, Extraordinary Gentlemen. Humanity is teaming <laughs> up against the, the, the spooky things. Yeah, yeah. Or the Mystery Men, you know? Mm. Classic. So let's let's talk a little bit about the campaign mechanics so concealed um i think we thought this was mostly kind of cool like we had some qualms with some of the way that the rules works like in particular it felt like if you're trying to like min max and optimize how to deal with concealed you basically just want to have ways to ping things for one damage all day so you just want to have like auto clues right you want to be like healing your beat cop or your agency backup or like being agnes which ben and i did for our second run through and it was amazing yeah oh that sounds great so it was definitely fun. It felt like maybe it kind of incentivized you to pick a very narrow strategy to be efficient at it. Because some of these scenarios, if you weren't like incredibly efficient at clearing concealed cards, it could just really slow you down. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to put an asterisk there, too, because we always play a multiplayer. This this mechanic for solo players is an absolute nightmare. <laughs> it is it is an absolute nightmare. I mean, what what else is new? Right. Like uh, <laughs> like like Dream Eaters d- didn't like the final scenario of Dream Eaters. Wasn't it literally impossible to beat in solo? Yeah. Or something? Where the yeah. gods dwell. Yeah. yeah that's another like one. at some point. Take the hint and start playing multiplayer. You know, I mean. <laughs> I mean, I people mean, do. Sure. People play like two-handed. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, play yeah, yeah. play, you play two-handed. You know, just just add, take whatever character you were going to play. Add an Agnes. It makes <laughs> everything yeah. better. But I, I think it amplifies that what you were saying, in that like you kind of want to tech for it, in that like yeah. you might might want auto auto ways to scoop up clues or extra actions to evade or something like that. That's mandatory in solo <laughs> for this campaign. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, but I did like concealed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I liked the concealed mechanic for the most part. Uh, it adds a different way, d- a different randomness, but it's also felt controlled because you could, like, you know where cards get placed. So unless they get shuffled, you can kind of, like, figure out, oh, this is a decoy. That means the bad guy's there. Or, or this is a bad guy. Mm. That means one of those two cards is a bad guy or a decoy or something. So there was kind of a little bit of a... yeah. Metagame's not the right word, but like a, a sub game there to keep track of stuff. I think I, I liked it best when it was kind of closely tied to the objective of the whole scenario, like the mm-hmm. boss was yeah. concealed or something. And and that was usually true. There were a couple of scenarios where the only concealed stuff was some like random enemies, and then it was didn't feel as interesting, but it was still fine. Yeah, sometimes it kind of felt shoehorned in. Whereas like in Dancing Mad, for example, that was that was like where concealed was like at its peak for me because there were so many things interacting with the concealed mm-hmm. mechanic that it made it interesting i would say probably my favorite concealed bit was in the finale when you're trying to actually beat the boss at the end that was pretty cool Oh yeah that was good too yeah yeah, yeah. and they did yeah they definitely used it in four or five different ways so they kept it kept it kept it a little more fresh i would say definitely a successful mechanic um the other one that was new i think was hollowing so um, there's a lot of effects that will say you have to choose a card from your hand to hollow or a card from your play area or something and you kind of, it's sort of like discarding it, but it goes into like a phantom zone and you might be able to get it back later. I thought this was kind of cool because just making you trash stuff like for like, um, uh, Crypt Chill is already kind of a, like a pretty scary thing to happen. And it's like an interesting oh, yeah. thing to try to avoid. But this is kind of on the one hand, it's less bad because you might be able to get it back and you can try to play around it that way. On the other hand, there's a lot of stuff that would keep track of the number of uh, hollowed cards you have um and in particular like a couple of scenarios the objective was to like get all of the hollowed cards out of the hollow zone so i thought that was pretty cool it was like a way to make discarding or exiling cards be like more of an interesting thing to deal with yeah and there was a mechanics that even like were were like if you have a copy of a card hollowed you would interact with stuff in your play area or whatnot so you had to think a little bit harder about like oh well because normally it's like Oh, I have my my second copy of Runic Axe, however, I have one out already. I don't need the second one, so I yeah. glad, I gladly discard it. But if it gets hollowed instead, then that could could wreck up your day later. Yeah, exactly. Next time you draw that one encounter card, you have to discard your other copy of Runic Axe. Right. Yeah. That, that, yeah. It gave you some interesting decisions to make, which is usually what we want. Mm. And yeah, there were different. They, they did play with it in different ways, different scenarios where sometimes you could get the cards back. Sometimes certain monsters didn't care until a certain uh, you had a certain number of them, etc. So we like to see a, a new mechanic introduced and then used in different ways. And it felt thematically tied to the outsider enemies and to the kind of scariness of them trying to make people like d- to steal things and make everybody forget them because a lot of the outsider enemies would have like if you end your turn on their space you have to hollow something or if they attack you you have to hollow mm-hmm. something. So it felt like an interesting narrative 
expression of kind of like the the way that the bad guys work in the campaign. Yeah, there was like one specific thing that I didn't like about Hollowed, and it was some resolution that you could get in one of the scenarios, which basically says take the highest XP card in your deck and just tear it out of your deck. Just just like remove it from your deck because you forget about it forever, which is neat thematically, but also like, you know, if you, you get a key of yeast or something, it's like, bye. <laughs> but anyway. I'm pretty sure we didn't get that one because I would yeah, have been we, really butthurt about it. We we definitely did not. Dan would have been very unhappy. Was that no, well, is I mean, that a was that a bad resolution? Like you failed a certain scenario, or is that something you could just jump into? I think that's uh, the the Alaska one. Oh, hmm. if you if like the beast kills you or something uh, okay. or, or defeats you or whatever. Yeah, that, that's definitely brutal. Because <laughs> XP in this campaign in the first place was kind of it felt kind of lower. At least when our first playthrough, we, yeah, we, we felt pretty low. The second playthrough, for sure, it felt about normal. But we also had delves, so. Yeah, I think it's low on average for a campaign. Yeah. I guess the last major mechanic I don't think we've touched on is the keys, which kind of ties in with the, the coterie in general and their their interactions. Yeah, but it's shifting them, right? Yeah, the keys. So, like, uh, they, these are cards that have, like, kind of a good side and a bad side, and bad guys can control them, or the players can control them, or sometimes they can just be, like, on the board. But basically, like, the good side gives you some positive effect, but you have to flip over the key. And then to flip it back over, you have to do some bad thing. And when the enemies control it, it's just on the bad mode, and like encounter cards can trigger it, or certain things can, or or, or uh, chaos tokens or something can trigger it. Um, and then the bad thing happens, and you're sad. I feel like these ones were for me a little bit more of a miss because a lot of them were kind of like not that exciting abilities, or they were like one use abilities. And then the f- penalty for flipping them back over was not worth it. Taking them back. It kind of felt like having them was almost bad because you would have some scenario effect or scenario card that forced you to flip all of yours. And if that happened twice, just a million terrible things would happen to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, there were definitely, there were two of them in particular that I haven't actually used all of them, but I think I read them. But two of the ones that we did get the uh, were a little bit more interesting to play around, which was the, the flower, um, which I don't remember the name of. The, the last blossom. Yes. That like... You could heal everybody at your location, and then to flip it back over, you just had to heal all enemies. But you yeah, could directly yeah, yeah. like ping something or do one damage or something and trigger it. The thing that's not obvious about it is that you can't you can't heal all enemies if no enemies have taken damage, which might yes. not be which still feels a little weird to me. But f- fair <laughs> enough. Um, we had to look that up. Yeah, yeah. But even but even still, you know, maybe you manage to like do a little bit of extra damage to an enemy that you don't actually want to kill, and then like you can kind of turn that into something by using it to flip your last blossom so yeah and i like that because th- these campaign these scenarios also did have a lot of damage and horror going oh out. yeah holy so. yeah ab- like g- <laughs> just massive amounts of damage and horror in like most of these scenarios mm-hmm. like it was it was kind of ridiculous yeah yeah, yeah also random trauma but um the other the other one that we did like maybe dan wants to talk about it the anti-prism i believe it's called yeah the oh, twisted anti-prism yeah tell us about this i don't think i got this one so the twisted anti-prism is the one like really good fun one because the nice thing about it is you can use it to look at the top three cards of your deck and draw one and then shuffle the rest back in which is obviously nice but then to flip it back to the good side when it's on the bad side all you have to do is place one doom on a uh scenario or player card at your location i think right 
Whoa. Um, and so obviously really you don't want to put a doom on stuff, but you it's it's pretty often that you might have like an encounter card in your like a, an enemy in your threat area that you're about to kill or a scenario like a treachery that attaches to your location that you know is going to go away at the end of the round right, or right. an asset in your play in your play area that you know you're about to use up all the bullets on and then get rid of it or something. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you have to think about it. You have to play around it a little bit, but it's like a fun little mini game that lets you draw more cards. So that was really cool. Yeah, that, that one was definitely fun. Dan had it in our first playthrough, and then I got to play with it in the second one. It was definitely a fun thing to play around. Um, I kind of insisted really that Ben should take it for the second playthrough, because I was like, no, you have to understand how fun this is. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun way to play with Doom, which is usually in you know, Mystic's, Mystic's wheelhouse. Um, yeah, Ben Ben immediately got like at least as aggressive about trying to play it every turn as, as I am. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. The the fun thing with the keys is you flip them as a, a fast trigger, so you can like slip them into tests. There's lots of windows to when you can slip it in. It's 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 good stuff. So I yeah, so but the most of the other keys I wasn't as excited with, with the exception of in the final scenario in our second playthrough, I had like six or seven keys. I think we had just loaded them all into me. Um, you had a lot. Uh mostly because we thought it was be funny. It wasn't it wasn't <laughs> optimal. But in the last scenario we did the uh, the true ending, I guess, is what it's called. It's what you get after you do without a trace. And you have, like, all the guys team up. All the people that are still alive can team up with you. And all you, you can do lots of nonsense with the keys. Flipping the keys in that scenario, like, I think does damage to you because of the the fake Red Devil Man attacks you every time you flip a key. But if you, say, mm-hmm. have, like, seven allies that have a bunch of health and horror, then you can just kind of <laughs> constantly flip them over. And some of the negative effects for flipping them over were stuff you could assign to allies or put on stuff that was about to die or not. So I had a lot of fun in the last scenario being able to kind of like much more loosely flip keys back and forth. Yeah, that scenario was crazy because Ben was just running around with like an army of dudes <laughs> as allies and just carrying like a wheelbarrow full of keys around. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so the keys in general, obviously... It's maybe been hinted before that I like stuff when I like games when I have to collect stuff. We've been subtle about it, I think. So I do, I do like the uh, kind of trying to find all of the things and gather them, and and then actually have them be slightly more than MacGuffins because you could like actually use them to do stuff, you know? Yeah. So that's what I thought about the keys. Um, I think. I think that's it for the new mechanics, right? Mm-hmm. Should we kind of segue into talking about our overall impressions of the campaign and kind of give it our review, sort of? I feel like the first thing we have to maybe talk about is is like the way that the story is told, the way that the narrative is told. Like if you've listened to our Edge of the Earth episode, I kind of griped a lot about the amount of story text in Edge of the Earth. And I think you guys were more okay with it. Like like Dana thought it was it was pretty cool, and that's that's totally fine. Like different people like different things about the game. It's so weird to me that for this campaign they kind of like went way even harder in that direction. Like there's just so much story text. Like there's interludes. There's a lot of locations where like, it's not actually a scenario. It's just text. It feels like the word count must be like almost twice as much as edge of the earth, or at least like significantly there's like more 70 pages. It's, I think. it's huge. There's a lot of story text. I, I think maybe they could have edited it a little bit. Um, I think, uh, it's me. It's the story itself is maybe a little bit better than, um, introducing characters in this one than like edge of the earth is edge of the earth like introduces nine characters or whatever at the beginning and i don't really remember much about yeah them. like at least it's not completely front-loaded i guess mm. but still yeah i think it's most the interludes were like all the stops is really what kind of kills it in terms of like how much story there is i think 
just having a story around each scenario where it's like, here's the here's the spooky guy, you get or the the coterie person, you get like a hint of their personality, whether they're kind of a, a jerk or maybe they're nice or maybe you're not sure about them. There's and then whatever the scenario premises, there's a monster or a or a person doing something bad or an object doing something. Like I think that was pretty good because like even when we talked about the 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 scenario review, we're like, oh yeah, it's the one where he had uh, the lady with the flower and she was doing zombie stuff. I think that is clearer, like better way to introduce the characters because then they all show up at the end and you're like, oh yeah, it was you know that guy from that scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like that part, but uh, they also spend a lot of time on each of those characters. They probably <laughs> trim them down a little bit. I think a couple of scenarios are shorter, but some of them it's like, okay. The writers really liked this character. They really want you to like them. It's um, like we were joking earlier. They <laughs> Most of them feel like anime boyfriend, yeah. girlfriend, partner type people a lot. I guess yeah. it's not to say the writing is bad. Like, I think the writing is no. it was fine. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's just there's a there's lot of it. There's just a lot of it. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there's folks that like really like the story, and I generally like the story, but there's a point where it's like, uh, which this is a point that some people might hit way sooner than and perhaps myself, but it's like, yeah, I just, I want to play the game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm sure there's definitely some people that are into it, but I, I think that like for edge of the earth, if you looked on Reddit or whatever, at how people were reacting to it, there was somewhat close to an even split of people saying like, this is too much versus people saying, actually, I loved all these characters and I had a great time hanging out with them. Yeah. This campaign, yeah. it kind of seemed like it was maybe a little bit more tilted towards like this is too much, j- j- just based on the very limited amount of like skimming Reddit that I did, um, yeah. in like the, yeah. the few weeks after the campaign came out. I think it's also like even if it weren't too much, I think the way that the narrative plays out and the way that the, like the story kind of like involves itself in playing the game works sort of like against the way that the game is played because it's like. Usually when you have an eight-part scenario, each of the scenarios feels pretty distinct. Different encounter sets, different, like, you know, kind of goal at the end of it. Sometimes you'll have a Wages of Sin, then that's followed by a very different feeling scenario, like infiltrating the, right. the house of cultists, right? This one, every almost every single scenario felt like, figure out what you're doing. There's a, there's a Scarlet Keys Coterie person that pops up. Read a tunnel lore about them, figure out who they are. Then there's maybe also another boss in it. So it's like, in that way, every single scenario felt like a boss fight or like a a confrontation of sorts. And like meeting that, like meeting that requirement of like, oh, now you have to learn who this person is in in a greater detail felt like kind of exhausting after it's been done like the sixth, the seventh, the eighth time. I did like the payoff at the end where you get the whole council thing and they're all judging you and like based on the friends you made along the way or not, that it kind of paid off and you're like oh i remember those those people some of them are just like kind of unapologetically bad which is fine i think that they did a pretty good job with defining the the bosses and that some of them aren't bad some of them are bad some of them are kind of like somewhere most of them are somewhere in between but i think it kind of suffers from that every single scenario sort of feels like the same scenario in a way in that you're always meeting somebody at the end. Well, so let's, let's, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the kind of nonlinearity, like the map navigation side of things. Like how, how successful do we think that was? Like I, uh, my take is kind of what I said earlier, which is that it feels like you have a lot of decisions to make without really having a lot of information to go on, at least on the first playthrough. Like I can imagine after playing this campaign like eight times or whatever, and reading a whole bunch of stuff about it, maybe you'd get to make some interesting decisions, but I, the first couple of times, it 
kind of just seems like someone's asking you like, oh, do you want to go to Kuala Lumpur or Alaska? And I'm like, I I don't know. Uh, Kuala Lumpur probably has better food. Probably the weather's better, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, what, what did you guys think? Yeah, it's it. I think you've compared it when we discussed elsewhere, like it's it sort of felt like supplies in that you have to make a decision that is important in terms of like uh, what rewards you might get, the timing of it. Uh, we didn't even talk about the time mechanic, I guess, but that, and this is much more important than the choice yeah. of supplies generally. Yeah, yes. like the order you do them and like where you go, how much time gets used up. Uh, but you don't really know what that is exactly until after you've done it, which is which on replays it's it's kind of like oh I know this is a good decision or this is a bad decision, um, and that could be good. But in the blind playthrough, it's always rough. And actually, even in replays, it's like a lot harder to like track it all down without like making a spreadsheet or something. <laughs> and the yeah, thing because is, there's so much. Yeah. yeah, and and the thing is like okay, so if this were a video game. I think some video games, like, like not exactly like roguelikes, but something like that, where you're supposed to play it a bunch of times and get a different experience each time and kind of like gradually figure out what type of endings you like and what type of playthroughs you like. Mm-hmm. That That's like a cool way to structure a game. But for a card game where you have to spend so much work, like setting up the cards every time, I don't think it works quite as well. You can't just like press yeah. the start button or whatever and do like restart. You kind of have to like collect all the cards. Like I don't I don't know if anybody's going to want to just like play Scarlet Keys 50 times to try to get all the endings. I mean, like Ben yeah. obviously wants to get all the endings, but I'm not sure if even Ben is going to, you know. Uh probably not. Yeah. Cuz usually when I replay campaigns, I play with uh, new folks as well and I let them make all the decisions. So, in that case, uh <laughs> it's it's probably going to be very hard for me to just have one of them derp into one of these endings because some of them require specific things like to, to unlock different paths and like you can't hit everything yeah. you can't hit all the paths or even all the locations in one playthrough yeah for sure it definitely feels like i'm glad you mentioned that dan because that's like the thing that i wanted to mention too is that i feel like it takes a lot of inspiration from like souls board games and like Mega Man, right where or like, like near or something right like yeah kind of. like where where the way that you it's it's not really necessarily about like the journey it's more about like kind of like kind of discovering things and like the, yeah. the, the story is sort of told through the things that you find and the people that you meet and it's like while that works in a video game setting because you're not setting up a hundred whatever cards every single time it's like darn i didn't get that ending now i need to now i know i need to go to bombay and then i need to go to kathmandu and then i need to go to kuala lumpur and then like kind of seeding it out that way there's still like you can't smash through the story the story text every time because it's different because there's so much of it. Also, in in Dark Souls, you don't have like a one hour timer running for the entire game, and the game ends at the right. end of an hour or something, right? So it's like Dark Souls <laughs> right, meets right. like the Outer Wilds or something. It's like, yeah, just I, I don't really think that that works super well. So so that's like kind of my yeah. conclusion for this is. It's interesting that they tried this and like, obviously this is something they couldn't do before the all in one box thing. So it's interesting that they tried it. But like, if you ask me, do I like Arkham Horror better when it has like Mega Man structure or like Halo structure? I vastly prefer the Halo, like give me a playlist of eight great things that happen in the same order or even, even, you know, have like Dunwich, let me do the first two in whatever order or something. That's fine. I don't really care about that. But like, just structure it in like a cool flow like playlist that's that's enough for me i think it's definitely you know i encourage them to try out new things and i think this was was definitely a very interesting way to go about it i think maybe it was too much and it it weakened a bit of the storytelling to be able to to have to account for there's these six or eight stories in between the end the beginning and the end 
They could do them in any order, so we can't really have a major plot point happen in any of them. So is that's what what yeah. Dana was saying earlier, yeah. where it's all that's felt kind of samey. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, we want each one to be interesting, so like, here's a boss you have to fight. But they couldn't like build up so much outside of maybe the like without a trace. Like, but that the build up for the without a trace was you read a bunch of story text and then do the- it. Yeah, like the only scenarios that feel like they have kind of like a big weighty twist, like Pallid Mask or something like that, are the secret scenarios, which most people playing the first or second time probably aren't even going to find. Mm. You know, like right. well, so let's let's talk about something that I feel is related to this, to, related to the nonlinearity, but I think is maybe an even bigger problem, which is the kind of like the difficulty and the balance and the tuning of these scenarios, because. So what this campaign kind of feels like to me is they took like every knob or lever that they have access to to control how hard a campaign is, and they just turned all of them like pretty far to the right. So there's a ton of random damage and horror floating around, a lot of which you can't really test to avoid or anything like that. There's pretty strict time limits in some of these scenarios. There's very bad chaos tokens, and it seems like both of the playthroughs we did, we ended up with like four skulls, four tablets, four cultists or something. You end up with a lot of the spooky tokens. There's also mm-hmm. very low XP. Like I think this, this campaign I yes. think has probably a little bit less XP than Carcosa, I would say. Or like maybe if you do like, if you get all of it that you could possibly get, maybe it has like a tiny bit more than Carcosa, but definitely less than any of the later ones. There's some scenarios that like you could very easily come out with like two depending on what decisions you make. Um, I think maybe yeah. it's four or five-ish on average, but uh, yep. and, and if you're very lucky, you can get six, and then obviously you can delve or not to get more. But yeah, it was definitely felt lower than the last couple of campaigns. And the thing is, like, so we we like we like it when the game is challenging. We typically play on hard mode most of the time, and we try to like play good decks so we can handle that challenge. And it's not really a problem if they want to just like make all the difficulties a little bit harder because you can always just shift down one lower. Like that's one of the cool things about the game is it has this flexibility to it. But it feels like it's not that they necessarily intended to do it this way. It feels like maybe a lot of this is based on the kind of the fact that they couldn't make any assumptions about what order you're doing these scenarios in maybe contributed to some of this difficulty. And in particular, it feels like maybe like there's no way that they could play test every possible path through the game and doing every scenario in every order. Right. Right. So it feels like maybe they just didn't intend for it to work out this way. It just kind of did. And that's kind of frustrating. Do Do you guys agree with that? Like, what do you guys think? Yeah. Hard agree. I think that like the way that they scaled everything took away from the later scenarios. I didn't even get to the cool boss in Alaska when we played it because it was one of the later the later things. And it's like, it didn't leave me with a feeling of like, oh, I, I should revisit this on my next playthrough earlier. It just felt bad because it's such a time investment, right? It's like, it's like you're playing this game for like an hour, an hour and a half. It takes like 20 minutes to set it up. So it's like, I want to experience the full campaign or the scenario. And when I don't get that, it's just kind of like, aw. And, like, the way that the difficulty scaled, it felt like they kind of tried to just sort of do a global difficulty scaling with, like, the... They had, like, the checkpoints where there was, like, alpha, gamma, whatever. So they would, like, add bad things to uh, your your decks, or they might um, just... When you come here, if you have X or more time, dump five Doom on the first agenda. or like And you're basically screwed, right? To. Like, yeah, and yeah. it's like, yeah, and you have to really hit the ground running so, in yeah. those scenarios. The latter, so the, the first one, the way to scale, like, the time over time, all the scenarios become harder because you add more tokens to the bag, it gives more good weakness, whatever. I thought that was, like, fine, because it's like, okay, that yeah. that doesn't affect any individual scenarios. It's kind of a global tuning. 
with the exception of like maybe one or two scenarios where like the cultist was like rambling randomly way more ridiculous than it was normally but yeah but, but that, that that aside i think the individual scenarios where it's like they scaled up based on how long it took you to get there i think conceptually that like that's cool it's just like okay the bad guys are advancing their plots because you were over on the other side of the planet uh messing around with uh flint or whatever that guy's name was <laughs> that is maybe alive or not Thorn. You know, you you were you're hanging out in a bazaar instead of uh, hunting the monster in Alaska. So the monster in Alaska got to you know hang out with the the, the wildlife and become more powerful in their ways and whatnot. I think conceptually it's cool. I think mechanically it did feel bad for a couple of them. Like the Alaska one, you get a bunch of doom. I think uh, is the flower lady one where you like you just like skip the scenario if you have too much time <laughs> yeah. to get there. It took Harrison and I like 20 minutes to play. It took us longer to set it up than it did to play through it. And like half the town was already dead. The lion was like already murdering somebody on like, you know, like on a street somewhere. And it was like, oh, we just have to, I guess, murder the lady. And then it's like, great job. You murdered the lady. And that's it. And it's like, uh, all right. Yeah. Okay. So I think, I think story-wise it's cool. As I said, I think mechanically it didn't work. I think it would have been better if they change the scenarios to make it so the story was a little bit different and maybe the resolution was a little bit different if you got there later rather than just be like oh you have half so much time to do the scenario um which obviously that would be harder to design and whatnot but i think it would have been better play experience for especially sometimes it's the first time you're doing a scenario and you, you get there late you don't really get to do it i don't know I think another thing I would bring up that is sort of related to this as well is, um, so the kind of like the rules and the complexity of some of the mechanics, I, unfortunately I can't think of any like super specific examples, but the way that things like concealed works and flipping the keys, it felt like the rules for some of this stuff and how it could interact with certain scenario, like things in individual scenarios were kind of ambiguous. And it felt like things were not at written as kind of clearly and like, there was some like ambiguity in how things were written and you kind of had to think about it a while or go on to the FAQ or, or ask people on the Reddit or Discord or whatever. I wonder if that's also part of the nonlinearity and kind of the lack of playtesting, right? Because like, again, if you have a completely linear campaign, like, uh, you know, Forgotten Age or, or, or Dunwich or something like that, you can just playtest it like 10 times or 20 times. And you can probably like anytime you see something like that, like, oh, this encounter card kind of interacts weirdly with this other encounter card. You can write it down and then you can figure out a way to write those cards better, right? Um, even for FFG, like we, we, they've talked about like they don't have like massive resources to play test absolutely everything, but they can do basic stuff like that, right? Mm. I wonder if this campaign, again, because there's in, infinity, not infinity, but a, a huge number of different paths you can take through the campaign, there's probably some that they literally never play tested, right? So I wonder if that yeah. had something to do with it as well. Well, I, I know maybe it was a rumor, but I know like they used to say they didn't really te- play test even like hard mode because there was too much, too much extra resources. That's, so they, they just kind of yeah. estimated how to make hard mode. I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that was the vibe I usually got from hard mode. Ben, ben and I play tested hard mode. Here's our feedback. The tokens <laughs> are too brutal. The tokens are a nightmare. <laughs> I remember checking into your stream. I was like, I just hopped in on the stream and I was like, why is this so hard? Why are they just like getting wrecked? And like, don't get me wrong. I think this scenario should have come with like a do not play this as your first campaign like thing, Mm -hmm. because it's such a departure from the rest of how Arkham generally feels. A and B, it is so hard. The numbers are high. Yeah. The scaling difficulty is really tough. Balancing things aside. But like, 
you just keep having to do like a minus five will test or a difficulty five will test. And like the cultist is like minus six. And if you fail, hollow all of your cards or something like that. Like it's just <laughs> like, yeah, like I, I got to kind of a dark place in some of those scenarios just because <laughs> like the comparison between, so, so Ben and I had these two playthroughs, right? And the first one is up on YouTube. You can watch it if you want. Again, I apologize in advance if I was just like driven insane by, by some aspects of this <laughs> the campaign. And then our second playthrough, we didn't record it, but we did, um, we recorded kind of like quick little audio logs before and after each scenario. And I think we're going to try to release that as like a bonus episode at some point. So you can kind of like follow along with how we were doing. But the difference between those playthroughs is like the first one, it was a blind run for both of us. We played what we thought were good decks, which was Joe Diamond and Wendy on hard mode. And we, we did win, but we were like, we felt like we were just being wrecked most of the time. And it was like really frustrating. And then the second time we played on standard with decks that were like specifically tuned for what we thought you needed to do to like actually be good at Scarlet Keys, which was like will tests, damage soak and pinging concealed cards. And it went it, like, it went pretty okay, but that was like downshifting a difficulty designing the exact decks that we thought would optimize for the campaign and like knowing how each of the scenarios worked kind of that's kind of what it took to make it like you know not that hard like bearable yeah you say yeah, not yeah. that hard I, I, the until like the seventh scenario like every a lot of those scenarios we ended with like just barely alive yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Or or on the last round or whatnot. So like, but that first playthrough, we were like, it was it was really rough in almost yeah. all of the scenarios. Like we we had to resign on some of them, or or you died, or somebody died. It, it, it was and tougher. compare that to like our first playthrough of Innsmouth or something. Mm-hmm. I think it was not as much of a disaster. You know. Yeah, I feel like first playthrough of Innsmouth, like maybe almost died in the first scenario, and after that we were kind of okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Which is fine, exactly. right? The difficulty yeah. kind of is yeah. dynamic in most campaigns, but in this one, just across the board, it just felt hard. It just felt everything was just hard, regardless of the path that you chose. I guess I don't personally mind it being a bit tougher. Like, I'm usually the one that encourages us to do hard mode or whatnot. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I guess it just felt... The uptick was was more than I expected, combined with some kind of an initial uh, learning of the rules, like learning the con- how the concealed worked. I had to go back and recheck it every a couple, <laughs> many times to say, "Oh, is this actually trigger this? Oh, it's it's only treated as if it was an enemy, but it's not actually an enemy." Yeah. Uh, if you get extra clues, it doesn't count. You just have to hit <laughs> as extra enemies. Don't or... forget the very low XP yield, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I kind of thought a little bit more about the the progression of the story and everything, and the way that kind of they they weave in the the different interludes and everything. And it feels like it feels like because it's in this medium, they feel like unskippable cutscenes in video games, <laughs> where like you're just like I literally just need to walk away from my computer. Oh, right you now can because, you can skip them. I mean, but well, I mean, like it's just like you need to know like some of the things that are going on. You need to like yeah. be like okay what do I get here? What do I get here? What do I get here? Okay, fine. You know, I learn about the secret passcode or whatever. And then it's like, sure. okay, move on, moving on, moving on, moving on. And that just, that like, sort of like, it just pulls you out just enough to be like, if I'm going to like spend 20 minutes playing this next campaign, because I'm doing it later or, or this next scenario, it just doesn't feel worth it almost, you know? Cause yeah, like there's an unskippable yeah. cutscene I just had. And then it's like, eh, okay. But yeah, that's just, that's just regarding the scaling and, and, and everything. So so on that topic, we wanted to talk about like 
who would we recommend this campaign or more specifically which type of arkham players would we recommend this campaign to and i think the main thing we all thought is we would not recommend this as the first campaign that anyone should play or like the second after dunwich under any circumstances like you should probably play all of the other campaigns before you play this one right (laughs) i don't know if you play all of them but i would definitely say this is not a good pick for first campaign uh it's it's got a lot of complexity to go there's a lot of choices you can make um i guess maybe unless you like really love dark souls or something like a really punishing uh game that you have no idea what's going on but uh (laughs) the thing with dark souls is like you die on a boss and then you just run back and try again that's not really how this campaign works like again i'm i'm fine with dying on a boss and running back and trying again it's a long run back sometimes though it's not that long i I played bloodborne and sometimes it was like a couple minutes to run back to each boss i was like why i want celeste mode where like you die and you're instantly back on the on the screen you could try okay would would you say would you say the run back in bloodborne is shorter or longer than setting up an arkham horror scenario and taking apart an arkham horror scenario (laughs) i I would say it is shorter yes okay Uh, but but the boss fights are so shorter you know uh yeah yeah I think like one thing, one thing that Ben and I mentioned in our audio logs that you might see as a bonus episode is I think we said consider like shifting down a difficulty from what you normally play. Mm -hmm. Like, unless you want to have like a really intense challenge, if you normally play hard, maybe consider playing standard, that kind of thing. I'm considering playing easy just because I want to experience more of the story. I want to like kind of sit in the places more well and especially if you really if the story aspect of the game is what you really like then maybe you should play this but probably play it on easy because it simultaneously has like the most story content of any arkham horror campaign and it's like the most brutally punishing <laughs> yes which is strange yeah it's, it's kind of weird to put both of those in the same package but hey sure yeah i think for me what like sung about it is i mean i i'm complaining about the story text but i think that like some of the story text in terms of like meeting the coterie and like kind of understanding like what's going on slowly and um like the the way that some of the characters were fleshed out i really really did enjoy and i think for that reason like i have a couple friends who oh i think they'd really like this campaign just because globetrotting like is kind of their thing or like international spy movies are kind of their thing or whatever like the very specific like kind of noir uh you know involved swept up into some some global whatever is like their thing but it's hard for me to think of other people who i would recommend this this campaign to <laughs> yeah it's just tough with the ratio of of story text to play time we, we've we've harped on this a lot like i like we, the words themselves of the story text was good but the ratio of story text to gameplay time was not good <laughs> it was yeah. pretty, pretty bad it, i think explicitly there, there are a couple games that come to mind when i think of this scenario or this campaign um, which is uh, any of the Red Raven games, so like Above and Below, uh, there's a new one called Sleeping Gods, and there's uh, Tales from the Arabian Nights, which is a very old game, but essentially it has like a big book, and you go to different locations, and then it's like a choose-your-own-adventure, similar to like the old-school Eldritch Horror kind of thing, right? Where you flip over a card, and then it's like you're posed with a decision, and then it's like, what do you do? And then you do the thing, and then you move on kind of a feel so if you like that you might like and the the classic eldritch horror style is like you draw a card in like france and it's like as you walk under the eiffel tower sipping a delicious coffee suddenly you're attacked by a french ghosts roll uh, an (laughs) observation test to see if you can outrun it and it's great we love eldritch horror yeah unfortunately you were you were pierced through the skull by a baguette you're dead (laughs) now yeah exactly (laughs) yeah exactly yeah, interesting thing with the on our second playthrough, we did a fast forward mode with the story text, which was 
Ben read it quickly to himself and then summarized it for Dan. And that huge improvement uh, greatly increased. Yeah, that was a big improvement on the ratio of of reading story text versus playing the game. And I think that was probably why we liked to play. I like to play through a bit better. I think so. Yeah. So to kind of like cap this off and finish out the episode, I think what we've usually done for past campaigns is we've thought we've each picked one thing we liked and one thing we didn't like about um, the campaign. We've already covered a lot of it. Do you guys want to just go around really quickly and, and do that? And maybe also say kind of like roughly where we would rank it among the existing campaigns. Dana, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. So I think the thing that I really liked was the coterie. And was, like, the everything sort of coming together in the end. While, like, the the general trail of everything didn't feel that strong, there were kind of, like, little snippets of, like, you know, you see Aliki in Kuala Lumpur or something for a brief sure. moment, and you're yeah. like, who is this person? And then you're kind of traveling, and then Harrison and I discovered Aliki in the Bermuda Triangle, and we're like, oh, wow, like, this is this is where she was, and, like... So you get sort of snippets of story and it kind of comes together in a really cool way. And the way that they designed them, there was like a lot of attention to like making sure it wasn't just the same thing over and over and over again. In that like you've got Thorne, who was like very kind of mysterious and and like kind of like the sexy mysterious character. You have like Amaranth, who's like the tragic, her love just died and she's doing all these evil stuff for her love. And then you have like Desidiero, who's like kind of got like the the mob boss who's trying to figure out what's happening to his family and stuff. and like. They all, like, have stuff going on that I really enjoyed. But the thing that I didn't like was the the general difficulty, the scaling, how punishing all of the kind of mechanics together felt when I really just wanted to spend time around the world and kind of just enjoy seeing the sights and doing the things. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like all of the knobs turned all the way up, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Just maybe a little bit, little bit lower. And where, where would you rank it among all the campaigns, roughly? Well, there's a lot of campaigns um, now. Would it be easier to make it a binary where this is either voted the best campaign ever or worst campaign ever? Uh, would, that, would that be easier for you? I don't know. <laughs> or do you maybe, think that's unfair? Maybe, uh... <laughs> Let me think about this for a second. Okay. Let me think about this. Maybe not best or worst, but like, where does this rank in the, the campaigns that you would like to play like tomorrow? Top four versus bottom four. I would play Dunwich Legacy before I play this. Ooh, okay. This is in okay. my bottom four. I think this is... Okay. And it's not it's not that it's bad. I think any Arkham Horror campaign is better than pretty much any other game that I would ever want to play. You know, the the but, thing is you you have a good track record and I mean this as a as like a positive thing. You have a good track record of like finding a way to enjoy campaigns even if you initially don't love them. So maybe you'll like find things that you like about this more if you play it again you know yeah and that's the thing i'm not like unwilling to play this ever again yeah i remember feeling that way when i ended it in my second playthrough i was like this thing sucks and i hate it but like <laughs> i will i'm definitely willing to go back and play through it even the more we talk about it the more i'm like maybe maybe i'll try this again and figure this out but yeah. never on hard mode never on expert mode i'm just gonna play it and try to enjoy the things that shine in it um, but yeah, I think right now it, it ranks among the lowest three, probably. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I'd play any campaign before I played this one again, at least at this point, but that might change. I, I get that. Um, I'll, I'll go next really quick. The thing that I liked was, so my, my favorite genre of like anything is kind of globetrotting, historical, surreal 
fiction. Like I, I love the Indiana Jones movies. I love like Tim Powers books, anything that's like kind of like weird adventure that takes place in interesting places in the past. I, I love it. Uh, I like Elder Chore a lot. I loved seeing them do a, a whole campaign around that theme. So that was great. And I, I legitimately enjoyed like, I like location cards. I just like looking at a location being like, Oh cool. What's that building and looking it up on Wikipedia and reading about it. So, so that part like legit was, was really, really cool. And getting to like look up some cool music from all these different countries to listen to while we played it. I, I really did like that a lot. The thing that I didn't like is just, just, just don't make me make decisions that like have major consequences without have, without like knowing what the consequences are. Like I, I can see, again, I can see how if it's like a video game and you can just like save scum and go back or if you can like, do a, a playthrough in an afternoon and then do another one the next day that that can be fine. Don't make me do that in a campaign where it takes like 25 hours to play through the entire thing. That's, that's, that's yeah. my, that's my plea to, to fantasy flight games. Um, in terms of where I would rank it, I'm, I'm kind of with Dana. Like I would, I would probably, I guess rather play this than Dunwich maybe, but it's like those, those are kind of the bottom two. And Dunwich has like a useful role to play as like the first full campaign that for new players. Right. Yeah. I think that in terms of like, do I ever want to play this again? If I like live near you guys and we had like a Thursday night Arkham thing that we always did, I would be fine like having this in the rotation and getting to it at some point. But given that I like don't get a lot of chances to play this game, I probably wouldn't play it. Like I don't get to play that much Arkham. I would rather play campaigns that don't drive me insane. I mean, I guess they all, they all kind of drive you insane. I would rather play campaigns that don't just make me really mad. So, uh, yeah, I, I it, it's kind of a miss for me. Again, I'm, I'm happy to see them like trying new stuff and, and, and it, that, that's cool. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to what they do next and I hope they kind of go in a different direction. Ben, do you, do you want to go? Uh, so for me, I was, I was trying to pick stuff we didn't talk about already. I, I was going to lean towards my negative being the, the decision tree, just like, that you have to, if you want to like replay the game, you have to kind of keep track of what decisions you made previously, and it's not as simple as like the Forgotten Age, where it's like, oh well, you know, we can either side with, um, I don't know, I've got her name, the uh, <laughs> the the rainforest woman, or you can uh, side with the um, jerk, jerk guy jerk, that nobody likes, yeah, jerk <laughs> yeah, guy, whatever. Yeah. Or you can go off on your own. There's like there's like three paths, and it's like clear yeah, like right. which path you're on each time. This one has so many different decisions. It's like, do you trust people? Do you not trust people? That turns what token you get in the bag, what location you go to first, uh, which, which, I don't know. There's just a lot going on. And like, when we played it the second time, we, I basically looked up a, I said, Hey, is there a guide to like do these things? And someone was like, Oh yeah, here it is. And I was like, great. I don't have to make any decisions. I just said, <laughs> the decision is I want to do this path to get to this ending. And I had a guide, and I was able to be like, all right, we go here, here, and here, and that, that, that made it so much better. The first time I spent oh, I spent hours studying the map, trying to figure out where we could go, what seemed cool, if we could try to hit everything, and ultimately it was like, oh, we still missed a bunch of stuff, and I kind of only half <laughs> did stuff because I didn't know what paths to go down. So I guess that was, that, that was rough for me. I, I do think a big positive for this campaign, though, um, we had some gripes about some of the mechanics, but... I think a lot of the mini boss fights and boss fights were very well done. I think there were some very yeah. mm, good memorable yeah. ones. Um, and yeah. uh, there was maybe one or two that didn't work perfectly. Um, but I think most of them were like v- pretty good and, and fun. Like the, the Amroth was tough, but I, I thought trying to balance against saving the citizens and, and, and fighting her was good. You know, the, the spooky, the monster in uh, Alaska was pretty fun, like chopping it down. 
and there's different ways to handle it. You can either try to trap it and spend time trapping it, or you can try to just go fight it in the concealed zone, and then you fight it in its area. Even the Umbrella Lady we thought was a little mm-hmm. overtuned, but it was a cool fight. Yeah, I, I it was. Yeah, I guess for that one, for the um, Umbrella Lady and, and maybe even Amrath or something like understanding how the boss works on the second playthrough was a lot better. I think maybe the, the first playthrough the mechanics were, were kind of unintuitive the first time. Yeah. Around. But I think like on the second the second replay it was a lot better and I, I liked them a lot more. Um and I thought the final boss fight was also very strong. So yeah. in terms of like individual scenarios with like having big climaxes to each one with like a, a a cool boss fight or something, I thought they did a good job for for most of these ones. For overall campaigns it's tough for me to give a final judgment on this just because I do feel like it's like there's a bunch of stuff I still haven't done in the campaign. <laughs> but I guess I don't know how motivated I am to try to jump those in, <laughs> jump in and do those because similar to Dan, uh, I don't get to play quite as often as we used to. So it's kind of like, uh, do I want to, if I start up a campaign with some friends online or, or with my partner or something, do I, do I want to do Scarlet Keys again or do I want to revisit something older that I know is I enjoyed a bit more? Or or try a fan-made scenario. There's so many mm, these days, right? That's that's true. The fan-made scenarios it's true, yeah. also compete a lot. and They've and, gotten really good. Yeah, we we've done a couple on stream that have been very good. So I mean the, the the thing that holds back those, I guess, is like you have to if you want to play with physical cards, you have to get it printed out. And that can be a yeah. little little costly. But if you play digitally with those, then it's very easy to jump into those fan campaigns. So I guess there's a little bit of competitions there. Uh, I mean, I'm still going to continue to buy every Arkham product, so I guess that's not like <laughs> yeah. I'm not like deterred from official campaigns or anything. But so I guess uh, I guess I would rank this one lower. I don't I don't know if it's my worst I don't know if it's the worst campaign ever. Uh I don't I think I would revisit this before I go back and revisit Dunwich again. Um uh, but that might just because I've played Dunwich so many times. Um yeah. so for now I guess I I drank it in my lower set. I think the second playthrough I enjoyed it way, way more than the first blind playthrough. And I guess the blind playthrough leaving a bad taste in your mouth can really turn you off a campaign, right? Because you guys hate Dan maybe still hates the Forgotten Age because of how bad it was, the first playthrough was. Right? Well, let, let me tell you, I appreciate it a lot more after having played Scarlet Keys. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oof. Uh, not, to, not, not to drop a bomb on it at the very oh end or anything. But, uh, no, I, I mean, yeah. like I didn't I think, think it, it would ever happen. I mean, I, I think it's tough when the blind playthrough, like first impressions are important, right? It's tough when the blind playthrough is just a horrible experience. Like, like the, yeah. the first playthrough, and it was it was embarrassing because we were doing it on Twitch. Or, not that a lot of people were watching, but it was like, man, we're I'm having a terrible time with this. <laughs> we're getting and, and wrecked. Like, yeah, we're getting wrecked. Like, And it was just awful. And I was like, do we even want to do <laughs> yeah. an episode about this? Can I say anything positive about it? And then we did it the second time. Right. We played real cards. We got some Wawa sandwiches. We got some snickerdoodles. <laughs> Uh, we watched Boston Johnny. Like it was, you know, it, it was a much, much better experience. And like, it's still toward the lower end of the campaigns for me. But like, at least I, I think a lot of what was just so absolutely abysmal about that first experience was like the first first time <laughs> experience of it. You know? Yeah. But yeah. It, we, we still, we still have a lot of notes. Yeah. I guess we we talked about new players, but do would you would you either you recommend this campaign to uh maybe a veteran player maybe it's someone that doesn't just automatically buy every campaign but is looking to pick up their fourth campaign or something play all of the other ones first (laughs) i was gonna say say. so i would recommend this if so i definitely earlier when you were talking about that guide i think we should include that guide in the show notes because i think that that would make anybody's playthroughs like much better especially if they fleshed out the guide to like you know pick where you want to go 
in like a thematic sort of way. Like, do you want the Caribbean experience? You know, like like theme it like like a hotel, like or or you know, like a, a retreat. Theme it, you know, theme it like a like a cocktail menu at a Disney World hotel right. or whatever. It's like do you want the <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah yeah. I'd be willing to bet on Reddit or somewhere or on one of the discords there is a resource that's like here's every path and like here's the chain of decisions. Well, I I was given a specific chart because I said I want to try to hit all the scenarios, uh, if po- as many scenarios as possible, oh, okay. and get the true ending. And they're like, here's the guide for that. So okay, okay. You know, if we release that bonus episode, the order to do it is in that <laughs> bonus episode. But I, share the Discord it. if someone wants it; they could ask. Well, yeah, yeah. What was everybody else's experience with their first uh, TSK playthrough? Did everybody feel the same way? For folks who've played games that are like those Red Raven games or Tales from the Arabian Nights. What did you think of the structure? Did that like kind of translate well to the Arkham medium? Which code remember is your favorite? And this Ermert. is something that I wanted to bring up. <laughs> I was going to say my favorite might might also be Ermorinth because of the the tragedy thing, and she's just <laughs> such like a brutal, cold, strong antagonist. But I also like Thorn for being the you know the sexy anime uh, partner. And uh, Desidiero were, were my favorites. So let us know what your favorites were. Uh, reach out to us. Leave us a comment or email us at comments at mur.fm. Follow us on social networks, including Instagram, Facebook, or join our Discord server to hang out with us. Subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch. You can find the links to all of these at social.mur.fm. And if you really enjoy what we do, we always appreciate a nice review on your favorite podcast source. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Atlantis. Atlantis.